Thank you, Austin. Um, I'll also mention that I've had the honor of working with Bill Anderson, who just spoke a moment ago, on the Michigan Abraham Lincoln Bicentennial Committee, uh, which has been just a great effort. Bill has done great work, and we're all excited this week to, to get here and talk about Lincoln and, and uh, remember him on his 200th birthday. Um, I'd like to start actually by acknowledging my colleague, Gleaves Whitney, who you'll have the opportunity to meet outside if you want. I think he's one room over for another one of our lectures. Uh, we were on our way to D.C. a few weeks ago for a conference we did out there assessing the Bush legacy. And I was trying to work out what I was going to say here this morning. Uh, I knew why I thought Lincoln was heroic, and I, you know, this is what I was telling Gleaves. And eventually stopped me and he said, well, that's Joseph Campbell. And that immediately clicked in for me, and we'll talk about that here in a moment. But he was, he was spot on. And uh, Joseph Campbell, I think, is a, is a great lens. Joseph Car Campbell on the hero's journey is a great lens uh, to look at the life of Lincoln. And I think Lincoln is a great lens to better understand Joseph Campbell and what his writing and all his speaking was about. So with that, I'll just get started. Thank you all, too, for being here. This is great, and thanks to the Michigan Council for the Social Studies, who also does great work. And you know what? I'll acknowledge my dad, too, who's in the audience, Mike Flanagan, Superintendent of Public Instruction here. <laughs> He's probably going to hate me, but he needs to be acknowledged. There is no new thing to be said about Lincoln, a congressman from Kansas once eulogized. There is no new thing to be said of the mountains, or of the sea, or of the stars. The years go their way, but the same old mountains lift their granite shoulders above the drifting clouds. The same mysterious sea beats upon the shore. The same silent stars keep holy vigil over the tired world. But to the mountains and sea and stars, men turn forever an unwearied homage, and thus with Lincoln. For he was a mountain and grandeur of soul. He was a sea deep, a deep sea undervoice of mysterious loneliness. He was a star in steadfast purity, in purpose and service, and he abides. One year before these words were uttered, President Warren Harding dedicated the Lincoln Memorial, housed in a shrine designed to mimic the Temple of Zeus in Olympia. Lincoln's massive 20-foot marble statue towers above visitors as they enter, below the inscription, in this temple as in the hearts of the people for whom he saved the Union. The memory of Abraham Lincoln is forever enshrined. A surviving 19th century silver print has Lincoln in the arms of George Washington, wearing Apollo's laurel crown and ascending bodily into heaven. Since his assassination, it's fair to say, we Americans have been none too bashful and our praise of Lincoln. Mythology and marble, however, can obscure flesh and blood, and it is the work of historians to bring Lincoln back to life as a human being, to give us a more intimate view of the man. It is important, for example, to understand, that Lincoln, or to understand Lincoln's views on race and on civil liberties in wartime. It is important to explore the controversies of Lincoln's life and legacy and to find substance and truth. Lincoln scholars today, Donald, McPherson, Goodwin, Galzo, Holzer, and others, are doing a commendable job of it. Yet I'm going to argue this should not detract from the, lift, the myth of Lincoln, which itself is quite valuable. Joseph Campbell, the late writer and mythologist, spent a career finding red threads connecting the myths of the great cultures of the world. Mythology, said Campbell, has a pedagogical function 
of how to live a human lifetime under any circumstances. Myths, he said, can teach you that. Those of you familiar with Joseph Campbell's work will be familiar with his best-known book, The Hero of a Thousand Faces, which traces the journey of what he calls the archetypal hero and links Odysseus to Muhammad, to Christ, to the Buddha, and King Arthur, and George Washington, and Luke Skywalker. The list goes on and on. It's, it's, it's everywhere. In the hero's journey, Campbell found a mythology that spans all cultures and all times, a truly human story. The plot is simple. Our hero receives a call to adventure, accepts it, crosses a threshold into an unfamiliar world, endures a road of trials, and ultimately obtains a boon, often at the cost of great personal sacrifice that will redound to the benefit of the broader society. These heroes are sometimes fictional, sometimes factual, but their journey, one we will clarify through Lincoln's example in a moment, blazes a trail that we can envision when we hear our own calls to adventure. We have not to risk the adventure alone, Campbell said, for the heroes of all time have gone before us. The labyrinth is thoroughly known. We have only to follow the thread of the hero path. We read and hear stories in our youth and adolescence. We witness heroic actions throughout our lifetime, and along the way we learn important lessons, one of which, in Campbell's words, is that at the bottom of the abyss comes the voice of salvation. At the darkest moment comes light. Lincoln, as we shall see, made great use of this lesson. He, of course, had numerous heroes, men who helped light the path uh, when he received his call. He grew up with Parson Weems's heroic depiction of George Washington, Shakespeare's political and tragic heroes, Marcus Brutus, Lear, Macbeth, Hamlet, fascinated Lincoln. In politics, he had Henry Clay and Daniel Webster. Most importantly, he had his Bible and the heroic journeys of Moses and Jesus. These heroes had an enormous impact on Lincoln's thinking, and they helped shape his life and work. So of course we must bring heroes down to the ground, to the flesh and blood, to the fullest substance of truth we can obtain, but we must also celebrate what is heroic in them, internalize their lessons, and then we can call upon their example when we face our own physical and spiritual trials. Lincoln, I think, is truly heroic in three primary ways. We can recognize, in other words, three heroes' journeys in which Lincoln accepted a call to action, endured great trials, and obtained a boon for his fellow man. First, he overcame his own debilitating depression and the sorrowful events of his life and emerged with an ambition, in his words, to make the world a little better for my having lived in it. Second, he overcame his own poverty and emerged as a competent professional with a skill set and the wherewithal to achieve his ambition and the rise from the log cabin to the White House. Third, Lincoln most Lincoln's most recognizably heroic act, he overcame the nation's profound divisions and removed forever from the land the great sin of slavery. First, let's look at Lincoln's depression, his inner hero's journey. We recognize today that Lincoln was likely genetically predisposed to depression. His father had a depressive streak, often striking out on long, lonely walks in the woods, muttering to himself. His mother was known for her melancholy, and the family of his uncles and aunts and cousins exhibited symptoms of mental illness, many of them landing later in asylums. Lincoln himself was remembered by family, neighbors, and work associates as a profoundly melancholy man. 
He wore a sadness on his face. There's a now famous story about Leo Tolstoy venturing into the Caucasus Mountains between Europe and Asia and discussing Lincoln's accomplishments with a Muslim chieftain there. He spoke with a voice of thunder. He laughed like the sunrise, and his deeds were as strong as rock, the chieftain said of Lincoln. After seeing a photograph of Lincoln, however, his tone changed. He gazed at it for several minutes, Tolstoy later remembered. Like one in a reverent prayer, his eyes filled with tears. He was deeply touched, and I asked him why he had become so sad. After pondering my question for a moment, he replied, Don't you find, judging from his picture, that his eyes are full of tears, and that his lips are sad with a secret sorrow? Lincoln struggled mightily with his depression. His neighbors and friends would long remember his withdrawn moody spells. They were common in the words of Lincoln biographer Joshua Wolf Schenck. They were just one thread of a curious fabric of behavior and thought that Lincoln friends and colleagues called his melancholy. He often wept in public and recited maudlin poetry. He told jokes and stories at odd times. He needed the laughs, he said, for his survival. As a young man, he talked of suicide. And as he grew older, he said he saw the world as a hard and grim place, full of misery, made that way by the fates and forces of God. Not exactly the Lincoln we remember today. According to Lincoln's, one of Lincoln's work associates, legal associates, no element of Mr. Lincoln's character was so marked, obvious, and ingrained as his mysterious and profound melancholy. Lincoln's longtime law partner, who conducted numerous interviews with family members and friends and wrote one of the first and best research biographies after his death, said that his melancholy dripped from him as he walked. Lincoln, of course, recognized his sorry state, as did those around him, and the dangers inherent. In one of his deepest moments of sorrow, he wrote to yet another legal associate, he was not bashful about his depression, to remain as I am is impossible. I must die or do better. This was Lincoln's first call to action. He recognized that he must overcome his depression if he was going to continue on. In his life, Lincoln would endure a long road of trials. He was tried by the deaths of those he loved most. His younger brother died when he was an infant in Kentucky. In 1818, when Lincoln was nine, his uncle and aunt, Thomas and Elizabeth Sparrow, and then his mother, Nancy Lincoln, all died in a wave of infectious disease that swept his community in rural Indiana. They called the disease milk sick, which would have been the salmonella or the, men, the uh, bacterial meningitis of that day, the cases thickly announced uh, to the dread of neighbors. When the individual is about to be taken down, biographer Shank quotes in describing this disease, he feels weary, trembles, more or less under exertion, and often experiences pain, numbness, and slight cramps. Nausea soon follows, then a feeling of depression and burning at the pit of his stomach, then retching, twitching, and tossing side to side before long, the patient becomes deathly pale and shrunk up, listless and indifferent, and lies between fits of retching and a mild coma. Lincoln watched his mother suffer and die this way in their small one-room cabin. His older sister, to whom he was very attached, moved out of the family home when Lincoln was 17, only to die in childbirth the next year. The baby, Lincoln's nephew, was stillborn. A neighbor later recalled Lincoln's reaction to the news about his sister. He sat down in the door of the smokehouse and buried his face in his hands. 
the neighbor remembered. The tears slowly trickled from between his bony fingers and his gaunt frame shook with sobs. Lincoln's trials did not end with the deaths of the three most important women in his childhood. His relationship with the men of his family was the second trial to be endured. His father, who was barely literate, never understood his son's literary bent. Lincoln would often wander away from his chores to read a book under the shade of a tree. He would get up early in the morning and read, steal away throughout the day to read, and read well into the evening by the fireside. To his father, stepbrother, and cousins, who expected to live and die laboring on a farm, this seemed beyond indulgent. It was wasteful, lazy, contemptible. His father, not generally harsh and abusive, would often beat his son for this behavior. Lincoln was lazy, a very lazy man, his cousin concluded. His neighbors agreed. He was awfully lazy. He was no hand to pitch in and work like killing snakes. Lincoln, for his part, rejected their way of life and their worldview. Such a distance came between Abraham and his father years later, that years later, despite pleas from his father, or from his father's bedside where he lay dying, Lincoln elected not to return home, and he stayed away too during his father's funeral. A third trial Lincoln endured was a terrible love life. First, there was Anne Rutledge. It's debated among historians, as it, is among, as it was among his contemporaries, whether or not Abraham and Anne were engaged to be married. Um, but many believe that Anne was the love of Abraham's life. Rutledge was a very pretty girl, according to historian David Herbert Donald, with fair skin, blue eyes, and auburn hair. A neighbor remembered that she was a pure and kind, as pure and kind of heart as an angel, full of love, kindness, and sympathy. Herndon later claimed that Anne was the only woman Lincoln ever loved. In the fall of 1835, however, Abraham once again was devastated by death. He lost Anne to typhoid, and afterward he endured a prolonged emotional collapse that we will revisit in a moment. Next, there was Mary Owens, with whom Lincoln had a love affair when he was 27. Abraham and Mary had an informal understanding that they would eventually wed. However, Mary went home for some months to her parents' house, and upon her return, Lincoln began having uh, second thoughts. This isn't one of Lincoln's prouder moments. Biographer David Herbert Donald recounts Lincoln's response to Mary's eagerness to wed. He feared that her coming so readily showed that she was a trifle too willing. He began finding defects in her appearance. From her first visit to New Salem, he remembered that she was pleasingly stout, weighing between 150 and 180 pounds, according to contemporaries. But now she appeared, in Lincoln's words, a fair match for Falstaff. <laughs> And Lincoln later recalled the transformation this way. This is horrible, but pretty, pretty hilarious. Now when I beheld her, I could not for my life avoid thinking of my mother. And this, not from withered features, for her skin was too full of fat to permit its contracting into wrinkles, but for her want of teeth, weather-beaten appearance in general, and from a kind notion that ran in my head that nothing could have commenced at the size of infancy and reached her present bulk in less than 35 or 40 years. And you've got to please the... Well, <laughs> the two were separated by geography again for some months when Lincoln moved from New Salem, Illinois to Springfield. Lincoln took advantage of the opportunity to engage in a six-month campaign to convince Mary, in writing, that she should break off the engagement. Out of a sense of honor, Lincoln couldn't bring himself to do it, so he wanted Mary to do it. Um, 
She would not fit, or, I'm sorry, he told Mary that she would be unhappy, uncomfortable, and poor in Springfield. She would not fit in. Their match would cause her great physical and emotional distress. You have not been accustomed to hardship, he told her, and it may be more severe than you now imagine. He ended his final letter to Mary saying, I am willing and even anxious to bind you faster if I can be convinced that it will in any considerable degree add to your happiness. Needless to say, Mary rejected Abraham's offer and Lincoln, to his surprise, was devastated. Um, in fact, it led him to believe that he actually was in love with her in the first place. He couldn't quite make up his mind. Next, there was Mary Todd, who had come to town from her home in Kentucky to visit a cousin. Lincoln and Mary Todd spent much time together, and she, a hugely ambitious woman, was, saw potential in Abraham's career, and she did most of the courting. Abraham, six foot four, and Mary Todd, five, differed in more than height. One neighbor remembered that the two were not a congenial couple. Their tastes were so different. Herndon decided that they were polar opposites in, quote, figure and physical proportions, in education, bearing, temperament, history, and everything. Ever indecisive in love, Lincoln himself came to believe that they were a poor match. They were, in his words, not congenial and were incompatible. And so he broke off the engagement and was humiliated for it. After Mary Todd, Lincoln briefly courted two other women. First, there was 18-year-old Matilda Edwards, rumored to be a factor in Lincoln's brick for Mary Todd. Second, after he was rejected by Matilda, he proposed to yet another woman, 16-year-old Sarah Ricard, who rejected his offer in her words because his peculiar manner and his general deportment would not be likely to fascinate a young girl just entering the society world. As we know, Lincoln eventually returned to Mary Todd, I feel like I'm reciting a soap opera here. As we know, Lincoln eventually returned to Mary Todd and married her, ending his tumultuous series of love affairs. The two, however, did not live happily ever after. Uh, Mary Todd also had a history of mental illness in her lineage, and she would eventually be institutionalized after she survived her husband and three of their four sons, all of whom died in childbirth or in childhood. Through Lincoln's trials, he had two severe emotional collapses that gave us a glimpse into just how profound his depression was. One of them occurred in the fall of 1835 after the death of Anne Rutledge, and the other in January 1841 after his separation from Mary Todd, and at a time when his political career appeared to be in shambles, and his best and closest friend, Joshua Speed, was moving back to his parents' home in Kentucky. In both instances, friends feared that Lincoln had lost his mind forever, and that he might commit suicide. Several later recalled hiding his razor blades and knives for this reason, and in fact a poem glorifying suicide appeared in a local paper and is widely attributed to Lincoln today. In both instances, Lincoln required considerable help from friends and even from medical doctors uh, before he could recover. According to historian Michael Burlingame, Lincoln likely underwent many of the customary procedures of that time, including a painful regimen of bleeding, leeching, the application of heated cups to the temples, mustard rubs, foul-tasting medicines, and cold water baths. He made a public spectacle of himself, breaking down, crying, and talking of suicide. For not giving you a general summary of the news, you must pardon me, Lincoln wrote to his law partner in the midst of his second collapse. It is not in my power to do so. I am now the most miserable man living. If what I feel were equally distributed to the whole human family, there would not be one cheerful face on the earth. Whether I shall ever be, a better, be better, I cannot tell. I awfully forebode, I shall not. 
To remain as I am is impossible. I must die or do better. You heard that line earlier. Lincoln wrote this letter a month before his 32nd birthday, 20 years before he took the oath of office as president. If a determination to overcome depression was Lincoln's call to adventure, and his road of trials included the deaths of numerous loved ones, poor relations with his father, a miserable love life, and two emotional collapses, then the boon that Lincoln brought back from his journey was an ambition to make the world a better place. Lincoln wielded two powerful weapons against his depression, his sense of humor and his passion for learning, but perhaps the strongest weapon was his overweening ambition. During his 1841 collapse, Lincoln declared to Speed that he, quote, would be more than willing to die, but I have an irrepressible desire to live till I can be assured that the world is a little better for my having lived in it. He wanted to connect himself with the great events transpiring in his generation, according to Speed, to, so, to quote, so impress himself upon them as to link his name with something that would redound to the interest of his fellow man. Lincoln's first hero's journey through the depths of his soul awakened his ambition to change the world. Now, this ambition was a tall order for a boy born into a one-room, 16 by 18 log cabin with dirt floors and no glass windows. Lincoln's poverty was not uncharacteristic of the American frontier of that day, but his rise was singular and stunning. Lincoln's philosophy of economics and opportunity combined elements of Thomas Jefferson's vision for America and Alexander Hamilton's, but Lincoln did not learn his philosophy from studying these men. He came to it through his own lived experience, through his own trials and achievements, through his second hero's journey. Lincoln was born into an America that Jefferson had envisioned. His father, Thomas Lincoln, was an independent farmer who moved his family from Kentucky to Indiana to Illinois in pursuit of more fruitful lands. Lincoln labored hard on his father's property, clearing wooded areas, farming, grubbing, hoeing, and making fences. As Thomas's health declined, he became more and more dependent on young Abraham's labor, even hiring him out to neighbors at times to earn extra money. However, Abraham despised his physical labor as much preferring, in Shank's words, the mental labor that the market economy would make abundant. Lincoln later wrote scornfully about his father who grew up, that he grew up literally without education and never did more in the way of writing than to bunglingly sign his own name. The usual hero adventure begins with someone, said Joseph Campbell later, who feels that there is something lacking in the normal experiences available were permitted to members of his society. This person then takes off on a series of adventures beyond the ordinary, Campbell continues, to discover some life-giving elixir. Lincoln's determination to leave his father's world and to discover some life-giving elixir in Alexander Hamilton's world of bustling urban pursuits was his second call to adventure. In this journey, Lincoln would again face a long road of trials. First, he was tried by his lack of education, or the lack of educational opportunities on the frontier. Lincoln obtained in his lifetime some 18 months of formal education. During these 18 months, spread across several years, he outpaced his peers. Lincoln outshone his schoolmates, writes historian Michael Burlingame. He arrived at school early, paid close attention to his studies, read and reread his assignments, never wasted time, made swift progress, and always stood at the head of his class. As his cousin John Hanks observed, he worked his way by toil to learn was hard for him, 
but he always worked slowly and surely. His success in 18 months of school would not compare to the success of many of his peers in the state legislature and the United States Congress or even in his own cabinet. Among his Illinois colleagues of the 30th Congress, for example, were graduates of Hamilton College, Union College, Transylvania University, and Dartmouth. His cabinet included graduates of Kenyon, Dartmouth, Norwich, Union, and the U.S. Military Academy. In his famously brief autobiography provided for the 1858 Dictionary of Congress, Lincoln stated tersely, education, defective. Yet Lincoln toiled at his personal studies. From an early age, working to master grammar, writing, and mathematics. According to his family members, he was a constant and stubborn reader who would read all the books he could lay his hands on. He read diligently, studied by the daytime, went to bed early, got up early, and then read, according to family members. Lincoln later told a friend that he got a hold of and read every book that he heard of in the country for a circuit of some 50 miles. He read the Bible, Aesop's Fables, Shakespeare, Bunyan, Burns, Defoe, Byron, Poe, and, practically, and practical books about spelling, grammar, mathematics, and history. According to his stepmother, when he came across a passage that struck him, he would write it down on a board if he had no paper and keep it there till he did get paper. Then he would rewrite it, look at it, repeat it. He ciphered on boards when he had no paper or no slate, and when the board would get too black, he would shave it off with a drawing knife and go about again. He read newspapers and letters for illiterate neighbors, stood before his boyhood peers to recite words from from stories or sermons that he had heard, and he read political reports, primarily from the National Republican journals that railed against Andrew Jackson and favored Lincoln's political hero, Henry Clay. He continued with great discipline into his adult life. In New Salem, he read for pleasure and self-improvement. After studying hard for two or three hours in the evening, writes Burlingame, he would relax with a volume of poems. And the result was a man Jacques Berzun would later praise as a literary genius, a man who could write letters and speeches that were destined to wide fame, in Ralph Waldo Emerson's words. What pregnant definitions, Emerson said about Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, what unerring common sense, what foresight, and on great occasions, what lofty and more than national, what human tone. Despite his aggressive self-education, Lincoln faced a second trial, the limited number of economic opportunities offered up on the frontier. His father, for example, was in perpetual poverty, a constant struggle to survive. How is Abraham to succeed with these limitations? The short answer is that Lincoln busied himself trying every opportunity that was available on the frontier. In the course of 10 years, writes David Herbert Donald, Lincoln tried nearly every kind of work that was offered, carpenter, riverboat man, store clerk, soldier, merchant, postmaster, blacksmith, surveyor, lawyer, politician, the list goes on and on. He was trying anything he could have the opportunity to try. He began by striking up from his father's farm to participate in house raisings and to sell firewood to steamers on the Ohio River. He hired himself out to drive a riverboat, to kill hogs, to build and mend fences, and to plow. Lincoln later recalled a particular occasion that encouraged his ambitions. He was hired by two men to row them out to a larger boat, and he expected a few bits in return. But when they arrived at their destination, the men paid him with two silver half dollars. I could scarcely believe my eyes, Lincoln later recalled. 
Gentlemen, you may think it a small thing, but it was the most important one, or a most important incident in my life. I could scarcely credit that I, a poor boy, had earned a dollar in less than a day. The world seemed wider and fairer before me. Lincoln's horizons expanded even further when he and a friend were hired by a local store owner named James Gentry to drive a flatboat stocked with goods downriver for sale in New Orleans. New Orleans was by far the largest city the two country boys had ever seen, recounts historian David Herbert Donald, with imposing buildings, busy shops, and incessant traffic. Lincoln got a more thorough education in commerce when after a second trip to New Orleans, another store owner opened a shop in New Salem, Illinois, for Lincoln himself to manage. And he eventually would become a store owner himself, uh, opening up a shop in the same town. Lincoln was never successful in business, but it was in New Salem, a town of 100 residents, a sawmill, a grist mill, and a half dozen or so private shops, that he first established himself independently. It was in New Salem that Lincoln gained confidence and the admiration of his peers. It was in New Salem that Lincoln first ran for political office, at first unsuccessfully, and engaged in an aggressive self-study of the law before qualifying for the Illinois bar. And again, he studied on his own time. He didn't study under anybody. He didn't go to law school like many of his later peers. It was in New Salem that Lincoln began to thrive. Of course, law and politics eventually took Lincoln to the Illinois State Capitol in Springfield as a partner at Stewart and Lincoln, Lincoln and Lehman, and later Lincoln and Herndon. He became one of the best known and most successful lawyers in the state. He was involved in more than 5,000 cases in his 23-year legal career. He argued thousands before the Illinois District and Circuit Courts, more than 300 before the Illinois Supreme Court, and better than 70 in federal courts. He argued criminal cases, uh, most famously defending accused murderer William Armstrong. Though it was 11 o'clock at night and he was standing 150 feet away, Donald recounts of the key witness in the case, he claimed that he could see the attack clearly by the light of a nearly full moon shining directly overhead. Producing a farmer's almanac during his cross-examination, Lincoln showed to a court that roared with laughter that at the time of the attack, the moon had already set. Lincoln won acquittal and much praise for his ingenuity. He argued corporate cases, often representing railroad companies before the Illinois Supreme Court. His winning arguments earned him much notice and high fees. His highest fee, in fact, was $5,000 from the Illinois Central Railroad, uh, the modern-day equivalent today of about $170,000 for one case. Most, of, most years, Lincoln's practice earned him about $2,000, but he came to own real estate valued at $5,000 and a personal estate of $12,000. This would be the equivalent today of a $70,000 income, $170,000 in real estate, and a $400,000 personal estate. By the time he left for Washington, in other words, Lincoln would have been a man of considerable wealth in 1850s Springfield. His rise is truly stunning from the log cabin. Wealth, however, was not enough to fulfill Lincoln's ambition. He desired reputation and position, and if he was truly going to make his mark on the world, he needed wider fame outside his home state. Making a name for himself nationally was a third trial. After four terms as a leading Whig in the Illinois legislature, Lincoln won election in 1846 to the United States House of Representatives. He took up cause there against Democratic President James Polk and his Mexican War. 
He claimed that Polk was fighting a war strictly for military glory, that attractive rainbow, in Lincoln's words, that rises in showers of blood. Unfortunately for Lincoln, he gave his most high-profile speech on the subject, one in which he demanded that the president identify the exact spot where Mexico had begun the war, just one month before a treaty ended the war and ceded present-day California, Utah, Nevada, and parts of Arizona, New Mexico, and Colorado to the United States. Polk had won a tremendously popular victory, and Lincoln's first appearance on the national stage appeared to be an enormous embarrassment. Lincoln left Congress in 1849, and it would be several years before he would again seek election to national office as a result of a third call to adventure that we will explore in a moment. For now, it is worth noting that with his 1858 Senate race, and particularly his debates with Stephen Douglas, which were widely printed, reprinted, and consumed, Lincoln grew his national reputation. And from the fall of 1859 through Election Day 1860, Lincoln simply outworked his competitors for the Republican presidential nomination and for the election, giving high-profile and widely reprinted speeches in Columbus, Cincinnati, Milwaukee, New York, and New Haven. While William Seward, Sam and Chase, and other leading rivals for the nomination chose to stay home, Lincoln's well-received speeches brought him ever wider fame and reputation. Lincoln's second hero's journey from the log cabin to the White House equipped him with the wherewithal, the skill set, and the position to make good on his ambition to change the world. Now, immediately upon Lincoln's departure from Washington in 1849 began the political controversy that would inspire his return. It has been suspected by many in the North, or had been suspected by many in the North, that Polk's war had been waged in the South against Mexico to open new states for slavery. I am a naturally anti-slavery man, Lincoln would later say. If slavery is not wrong, nothing is wrong. I cannot remember when I did not so think and feel. New slave states would threaten Lincoln's long-standing hope and the hope of many Americans, going back to the founders, that the monstrous injustice of slavery, as Lincoln called it, would slowly but surely disappear from the United States. The Missouri Compromise of 1820 fueled that hope by outlawing slavery above the Mason-Dixon line in the old Louisiana Territory. But now, if new slave states were allowed to open in the West and the lands acquired from Mexico, the domestic slave trade could again flourish, and the slave power could add to its numbers in Congress. Henry Clay struck a compromise, and Lincoln supported it, that attempted to end the controversy and save the Union by bringing California in as a free state, while allowing popular sovereignty, or the will of the people, to decide whether the New Mexico and Utah territories would be forever free or slave. Lincoln now believed that the debate over extending slavery was settled forever, in his words. There was a good chance that free states would be carved out of the New Mexico Territory since its climate was not ideal for cultivating cotton or tobacco. And, and Utah, surrounded as it would be by free states, would likely follow suit. However, Lincoln received his third call to adventure in 1854 <clears throat> when, when Senator Stephen Douglas's Kansas-Nebraska Act repealed the Missouri Compromise and reopened the Kansas and Nebraska territories <coughs> to the possibility of slavery. These two territories, consisting of modern-day Kansas and Nebraska, much of Wyoming, Colorado, and the Montana, and parts of North and South Dakota, 
would answer the slave question through popular sovereignty. The people, stated Douglas's act, were, quote, perfectly free to form and regulate their domestic institutions in their own way. Lincoln objected on principle, and he feared a broader conspiracy to allow slavery in any and every state in the Union. I hate it, Lincoln said of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, because of the monstrous injustice of slavery itself. I hate it because it deprives a Republican example of its just influence in the world, causes the real friends of freedom to doubt our sincerity, and especially because it forces so many really good men amongst ourselves into an open-air battle with the very principles of civil liberty, criticizing the Declaration of Independence and insisting that there is no right principle of action but self-interest. Stepping into the battle against the extension, uh, the extension of slavery, Lincoln re-entered politics and began a new journey. Once again, Lincoln would confront a long road of trials. His first trial reminds us of the recurrent motif in world mythology, the slaying of the dragon, of the dark hero. On encountering the power of the dark, writes Campbell, the hero may overcome and kill it. Stephen Douglas was Lincoln's dragon, whom Lincoln sought to defeat in the 1858 senatorial campaign. Now, it should be said that Douglas is not nearly so dark and ominous as a dragon. In fact, at five foot four, he, stole, he stood a full foot shorter than Lincoln. Um, this was not your typical David and Goliath story. And of course, the two were political opponents, not mortal enemies. Neither was actually trying to kill the other. Um, anyway, Lincoln and Douglas had known each other going back 20 years. They had confronted each other in the Illinois Supreme Court, in the Illinois legislature, and even in the United States Congress. In fact, the two had already debated Kansas-Nebraska and slavery twice before. On October 3, 1854, Douglas returned to Springfield to give a speech in defense of his bill in the lower chamber of the state capitol. As the excited crowd filed out following uh, Douglas's rousing speech, Lincoln stood in the stairway announcing that he would return the next day. Uh, to respond. He's out there yelling. People are trying to walk out, and Lincoln's getting in their way, asking everyone to come back. On the 4th, with Douglas himself seated in front, Lincoln railed against the bill and against slavery for three hours, the two bickering back and forth throughout. No man, Lincoln declared, is good enough to govern another man without that other's consent. I say this is the leading principle, the sheet anchor of American republicanism. They met again at Peoria later that month, even though Douglas was re reluctant to debate against, in his words, the most difficult and dangerous opponent I have ever met. In 1858, the two debated seven times in Illinois, at Ottawa, Freeport, Jonesboro, Charleston, Galesburg, Quincy, and Alton. Enormous crowds turned out for each confrontation, and newspaper coverage was widespread. In the high-profile debates, the two focused on laws and legal decisions governing slavery, the Northwest Ordinance, Missouri Compromise, Compromise of 1850, Kansas-Nebraska, Dred Scott. They distinguished between natural and human rights. Lincoln declaring to the chagrin of his admirers today, I agree with Judge Douglas that the black man is not my equal in many respects, certainly not in color, perhaps not in moral or intellectual endowment, but in the right to eat the bread, Lincoln concluded, with, without the leave of anybody else, which he himself, himself earns with his own hands. He is my equal and the equal of Judge Douglas and the equal of every other man. They debated the principles of slavery in moral terms, and this is where Lincoln most excelled. That is the real issue, said Lincoln at Alton. 
That is the issue that will continue in this country when these poor tongues of Judge Douglas and myself shall be silent. It is the eternal struggle between these two principles, right and wrong, throughout the world. They were the two principles that have stood face to face from the beginning of time and will ever continue to struggle. The one is the common right of humanity. The other, the divine right of kings. The founders set up a standard maxim of free society, Lincoln said, which should be familiar to all, constantly looked to, constantly labored for, and even though never perfectly attained, constantly approximated, and thereby constantly spreading and deepening its influence and augmenting the happiness and value of life to all people of all colors everywhere. Lincoln turned famous words from his hero Henry Clay against Douglas. Judge Douglas is going back to the era of our revolution, Lincoln said at Ottawa, and muzzling the cannon which thunders its annual joyous return. When he invites any people willing to have slavery to establish it, he is blowing out the moral lights around us. When he says he cares not whether slavery is voted down or voted up, he is penetrating the human soul and eradicating the light of reason and the love of liberty and this American people. Lincoln, we know, did not slay his dragon in 1858. Douglas was returned to the Senate. However, in the course of the debates, Lincoln did cause Douglas to utter his Freeport Doctrine, which turned popular sovereignty against the slave states. According to Douglas, regardless of what the branches of the federal government had to say about it, the people could, by lawful means, quote, exclude slavery from their limits. This opinion would splinter the Democratic Party when Douglas won its nomination for president in 1860, and once Lincoln won the Republican nomination, his victory over Douglas was all but assured. Now, people often ask why Lincoln, once he took the oath of office as president, didn't immediately emancipate the slaves and achieve his ambition. The short answer is that he did not have the constitutional power to do so unilaterally. The more complex answer is that two trials remained. Roger Taney's Supreme Court and the struggle through the Civil War to preserve the Union. First, Chief Justice Taney's reprehensible Dred Scott opinion proved that he would defend the institution of slavery if at all possible. To overcome Taney, then, Lincoln would have to accomplish emancipation through unquestionably constitutional means. This is why Lincoln favored an emancipation scheme that was gradual, compensated, and consensual. His plan, which he tried to implement in Delaware, was to offer a federally financed compensation scheme to persuade the slave states themselves to abolish slavery by an act of their own legislatures. Tawney could not object if the states themselves emancipated. Historian Alan Galeso and others have also argued that this is why Lincoln overturned two emancipation schemes implemented by his generals. He did not believe that they would hold up in court, and therefore he did not believe that they would accomplish permanent emancipation. Furthermore, these schemes would harm Lincoln's chances in the greatest trial of his life, the prosecution of the Civil War. More than is commonly recognized, the border states, slave states that remained in the Union, were key to the defeat of the Confederacy. One sharp jolt, one careless word, one idiot in newly made shoulder straps practicing a little emancipation scheme writes Galeso, and the whole border might fall over to the Confederate hands, and that would be the end of it all for Lincoln, the North, and the slaves. The border states held the wheat, corn, meat, and manufacturing that the cotton-bloated South lacked. 
They, they accounted for more than one-third of the white population in the South, and they controlled the great inland rivers, the Ohio, the Mississippi, the Potomac, that were the highways of the American economy. In other words, should Lincoln or his generals scare the border states into the hands of the Confederacy, the war would soon be over, the Union broken, government of the people, by the people, and for the people would perish. We know now that Lincoln decided on issuing the Emancipation Proclamation in the fall of 1862 before writing his now famous later st letter stating, if I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. If I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. Lincoln we had already chosen the latter course. Using his power as commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy, Lincoln took the one decisive action that Roger Taney's Supreme Court could not challenge and that would not rouse the border states into rebellion. As a war measure, he declared slaves in the rebellious states thenceforward and forever free. Only by the 13th Amendment to the Constitution passed by Congress with Lincoln's vigorous encouragement and approved by the states in December 1865 would all of the slaves and all of the states be forever free. Of course, Lincoln did not live to see that day. Struck down by an assassin's bullet, Lincoln completed his final hero's journey the way heroes from around the world often do. Many of them give their lives, said Joseph Campbell. But then the myth also says that out of given life comes new life. A legendary hero is usually the founder of something new, Campbell continued. The founder of a new age, the founder of a new religion, the founder of a new city, the founder of a new way of life. Lincoln knew what he was founding when he spoke at Gettysburg. These dead shall not have died in vain, he said there. This nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom. A new birth of freedom was accomplished for a whole nation of people by a depressed man born into poverty in the backwoods of Kentucky. Two hundred years after his birth, it is important to remember that what is heroic about Abraham Lincoln. By recalling his better angels, we may be better able, when our trials come, to call upon the better angels of our own nature. Thank you. I think we have a few minutes. I can I'd be happy to take anyone's questions, if you have any. If I didn't put you to sleep with an incredibly long paper, <laughs> probably inappropriate for this format. If not, we can all take a break. There's water outside. Um, there are some materials about the Howenstein Center, some pocket constitutions if you would like to take some, uh, brochures and other odds and ends. Thank you so much. <laughs>